Back in chapter 10, while Daniel is standing on the banks of the Tigris River, he receives an incredible vision of a certain man we know to be Jesus. Following this vision, an angel sent by God then appears to him. And keep in mind, Daniel is an old man in his late 80s. The angel appears in order to reveal to Daniel what would happen to the Jewish people, his people, in the latter days. This amazing prophecy that began all the way back in Daniel 11, verse 2, continues not just to the beginning of Daniel 12, but to the end of the book. So let's dive into the text, Daniel 12. Let's read the first part of verse 1. We're told that at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the people, the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. It's often helpful to remember that the book of Daniel did not come with chapter and verse breaks. They were added much later. The way chapter 12 begins, at that time, places what's about to be recorded in this chapter happening in direct relation to the Antichrist's abomination of desolation, where he enters the temple, declares himself to be God. It includes his final movements, initiating the final battle of Armageddon, as well as his swift demise, which was recorded for us at the close of chapter 11. During this time period, which we understand from the 70 weeks prophecy to be three and a half years, verse 1 is crystal clear. There shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. Following the abomination of desolation, the book of Revelation tells us that this time of trouble really kicks into high gear when the Antichrist demands everyone pledge their allegiance to him by taking this mark of the beast on either their right hand or their forehead. Appalled by this development, as well as the desecration of the temple, the Jewish people collectively, as a nation, reject this man. They repent of their sin and their wickedness, their rebellion, and they accept Jesus as their Messiah. In fact, in Romans 11, Paul writes about this moment. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We've looked at that before. And so all Israel, we're told, will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away many ungodliness, turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. According to Jesus' teaching on this subject in the Olivet Discourse recorded in Matthew 24, in response to Israel's rejection of the Antichrist, coupled with their acceptance of Jesus as their Christ, the world experiences a great tribulation. A great tribulation unlike anything that has ever come before. The prophet Jeremiah refers to this time period as a time of Jacob's trouble. Remember, Jacob's name is translated to Israel. Satanically driven and motivated. The Antichrist, he launches a systematic plan to annihilate every Jew, as well as every follower of Jesus, from the face of the earth. It's a holocaust on steroids. Revelation 13, verses 15 through 17, tell us that he was granted power, speaking of the Antichrist, to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as 
would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name, which we know to be 666. According to Revelation 20, the punishment for not worshiping the beast, his image, or receiving the mark, deciding instead to remain a witness for Jesus and for the Word of God, the punishment would be beheading. You see, in this tribulational climate, following Jesus will not get you ahead in any way. No doubt, an innumerable amount of believers will end up being martyred. With this in mind, I want to address the skeptic. The person out there right now that's presently waiting for the fulfillment of future prophecy before placing their faith in Jesus. I know that might sound odd, but I've run across these folks. Uh, People that will say, Zach, listen, if the rapture of the church actually happens, you know, in a moment, the trumpet of God sounds, everyone disappears, If I'm the only one left in church at that point, I'll know what you've been saying is true. And it's in that moment, okay, I'll give up. I'll accept Jesus as my Savior. Friend, I really hope that's the case. I hope that's true. You see, the challenging reality is that following Jesus during the tribulational period, while indeed possible, will be incredibly difficult. You see, without the mark, you'll have no access to the public square or the marketplace No ability to earn a living or provide food for your family. You'll be forced to live in the shadows. Additionally, because of your decision to follow Jesus, you'll be classified a criminal of the state who, if arrested, will face the guillotine. Like The truth is if you can't live for Jesus today, why do you think you'll be able or willing to die for Him then? Now regarding those living in Israel... When this great tribulation initiates. In Revelation 12, verse 6, we read, Then the woman, that being Israel, fled into the wilderness. And this is following the abomination of desolation. Where we're told she has a place prepared by God. That they should feed her there 1,260 days. Again, three and a half years. Though most of the Jewish people will tragically be caught up in the vengeance and wrath of the Antichrist. There will be a group, a contingency of Jews and others who are able to flee Judea to this, quote, place prepared by God, which is likely the rock city of Petra, located in the wilderness of Jordan. And it's why all of these things are happening. Daniel 12 opens. At that time, Michael shall stand up. First mentioned to us back in chapter 10, at the onset of this revelation, we noted how Michael was different than the rest of the angelic hosts. Not not only is he the only angel in the Bible given this specific classification of being an archangel, but Michael appears to be a warrior of sorts with the specific instructions from God to watch over and protect the people of Israel. (laughs) This guy Michael is a boss. According to the scriptures, on three occasions, Michael the archangel confronts Satan and engages in a direct altercation with him. First, as the Hebrew people prepare to enter the promised land following the death of Moses, 
Jude 1 verse 9 tells us, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, so there's a fight in the spiritual realm over the body of Moses, he dared not bring against him, the devil, a, a, a reviling accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. The second mention of, of Michael is in the midst of this tribulational period. In fact, we read in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9, that war broke out in heaven. Following the abomination of desolation, Michael and his, his angels fought with the dragon, we're told. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. The second altercation, probably happening in the middle of the tribulational period, Satan is kicked out of heaven entirely. He's no longer able to stand in the throne room of God, accusing the brethren. He's condemned to earth, where he wreaks his havoc. Finally, once the Antichrist has been defeated after the battle of Armageddon, Michael has one final conflict with Satan. In Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle John, he writes that he saw an angel coming down from heaven. We assume this is Michael. Having the key to the bottomless pit, a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. It would seem that during this great tribulation, and in light of the severe persecution taking place of the Jewish people, Michael, charged with their care, is working overtime. Yes, many will be martyred, but still others will find themselves being protected in supernatural ways through angelic interventions. In fact, it may very well be that those who are able to escape to Petra, that city of refuge, end up being protected from the fury of the Antichrist because it's Michael standing watch over them. Let's continue on. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame, and everlasting contempt. According to this passage, we know the eternal destiny of every human being will fit, in the end, into only one of two different categories. Make no mistakes about it. Following your death, you'll either awake to an everlasting life or to shame and everlasting contempt. My friend, there are no third options. There are no alternatives. For those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior and His death on the cross being sufficient to satisfy their penalty for sin, they will experience life with God for the rest of eternity. And yet for those who die rejecting Jesus and His work on the cross, choosing instead to remain in their sinful state, they will spend all of eternity separated from God in both the condition of shame and in a place of everlasting contempt. Now, there are those who will argue the very notion of hell being a place of eternal damnation and punishment is in somehow in like direct contradictory to the fact that the Bible says that God is love. They'll reason 
How can a God of love condemn someone to hell for all of eternity? Fundamentally, there are two core problems with such an assertion. First, God sends to hell no one who hasn't chosen to go there. Secondly, how could God be loving if in turn he forced you to love him? You see, the demonstration of true love demands in the other party the ability to choose not to reciprocate love. Like, like for example, I know that Jessica loves me. Why? Because I know that at any moment, she could decide not to love me. She's free. You see, free will and the freedom to reject one's love is paramount for true love to exist. With that in mind, how loving would it be for someone to spend their entire life here on this earth rejecting God's love, only for then in their eternal existence for God to force them to live with Him for all of eternity. Like it's such a dynamic heaven for that person would actually be a hell of sorts. Like in many ways, hell is not a contradiction of God's love for you, but the ultimate manifestation of a loving God willingly allowing you to reject him. Like, understand God. As a God of love, he forces himself and his love onto no one who resists him. As Norman Geisler once wrote, God is not a spiritual rapist. Like, in contrast, God is a divine gentleman. You know, this word shame used in our text, it describes such a person in such a way that it can literally be translated, shame can be translated as disgrace. That, that your condition is one of disgrace. <laughs> I kind of like to play on words, honestly. You see, the only people who will live out their eternal existence in a place of everlasting contempt are those who've literally dissed the grace of God. It's a disgrace. Instead, according to Romans 5, verse 8, we're told that God demonstrated His own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you. You see, God loved you so much that we're told He gave His only begotten Son to die for your sins. Why? So that you might accept that gift and live for eternity with Him, that you might have everlasting life. All that God asks is that you respond to His love, that you reciprocate by loving Him in return through accepting His Son Jesus. In his classic, The Great Divorce, which is a book I highly recommend, it's a tale of a, of a group in hell that are allowed to take a bus ride to heaven. Author C.S. Lewis He makes this statement. He writes, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. In Revelation 20, verses 11-15, through John, he describes the end. For those who reject the love of God. For those that reject Jesus and what Jesus did for him, this is your destiny. John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life. I think the book being referenced here in Daniel 12 was cast into the lake of fire. Now following the second coming of Jesus and the battle of Armageddon, several things happen. I want to go over them quickly. First, the Antichrist, a man known as the false prophet, which we'll get to in our series in Revelation, and likely the fallen angels and demons, are all thrown into the lake of fire immediately happens after the second coming of Jesus and the culmination of the, the battle of Armageddon. Secondly, we're told Satan is taken captive by Michael and cast into the bottomless pit where he'll remain in chains for a thousand years. Thirdly, after crushing his enemies, Jesus will then establish his kingdom on this earth with his capital city being in Jerusalem. In fact, the Bible says in multiple places, 2 Timothy 2, Revelation 5, 1 Corinthians 6, just to name a couple. It will then be the saints of God, Christians, you and I, who will then rule and reign with Jesus and His kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. Of this period of human history, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14, he writes the following. He says, In that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, this being Jesus, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, half of it to the south. And in that day it shall be that, a, a, that living water should flow from Jerusalem, half of them going towards the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Fourth, along with the establishment of His kingdom on this earth, Jesus will also usher in the total restoration of planet Earth. A planet, by the way, that has been brought to the point of complete ruin through God's judgments over the last seven years. Don't forget of this great tribulation. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 22, He says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. That's amazing to think about, really. But this broken world, will be healed by Jesus. In Romans 8, verses 21 and 22, Paul says that creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption, sin, and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Like basically, the earth, planet earth, is literally groaning for its maker. When Jesus restores our planet, there will no longer be pollution, no longer coronaviruses or viruses of any sort, no sickness. We'll have clean air, pure water. It'll be a utopia. Aside from the planet being restored, being healed, we know things will also culturally return to their kind of pre-fallen order, the way nature operates. In Isaiah 11, verses 6-8, through 8, the prophet declares that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. 
the calf with the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. Their nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Like in this restored planet, all will be made right. Every injustice will cease. Wars will end. Strife eliminated. Racism eliminated. No one. (laughs) And Jesus' kingdom will be rioting in the streets, I can tell you. Finally, with evil judged, Satan banished, planet restored, a kingdom established, the king enthroned, and the saints charged with ruling and reigning with him, the question now logically centers on who exactly it is that populates this earth for the millennial reign of Christ. Like, for starters, we know who won't. Like, all of those who swore allegiance to the Antichrist, all of those who took the mark of the beast on their right hand or on their forehead, will be destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon, and their souls immediately sent to Hades to await that great white throne judgment at the end. That said, we know that there will be a considerable group of people, a large group, on this earth, who refused the mark and somehow survived to see the second coming of Jesus, who made it to the end. According to Revelation 7, we know that there will be 144,000 Hebrew evangelists, 12,000 chosen from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. These men will be sealed on their foreheads as the servants of God during these seven years to testify as God's witnesses. Because of their special designation the antichrist will be powerless we're told to to harm them or destroy them we also know that any who are able to make it to the cities of refuge will also survive to the end beyond this according to mark 13 verse 27 there will be other christians around the world who will survive following the great tribulation we're actually told that jesus sends his angels to gather his elect to Jerusalem from the four winds, from the farthest parts of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Basically, there is no question that humanity will continue on into a new era following the battle of Armageddon. B.C., before Christ, A.D., and the year of our Lord, N.E., new era. As just one example of this, in Zechariah 14, verse 16, we read that it'll come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Israel shall go up year to year to worship the king and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Not only will there be people alive, but every year everyone will pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feasts. It seems, in totality, that anyone who stood for Christ during the tribulation and survived, will live into what's known as the millennial reign of Christ. Furthermore, because the planet will have been restored to its kind of Garden of Eden origins, human life expectancies, we're told in Scripture, might very well return to the way they were pre-flood. According to Isaiah 65, verse 20, again, of this time period, this millennial age, The prophet says the child 
shall die a hundred years old. So at a hundred years old, you're still considered a child during the NE. Now, as strange as it is to consider, for the thousand years that Jesus reigns on this earth, life will continue on. Nations will exist, innovations will continue, technology. People will marry. Children will be born. With this in mind, let's look at verse 3. We read, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In this tribulational period, humanity will be given one final, last opportunity to either accept Jesus or reject Jesus. The difference between then and now is that the line of demarcation will be unavoidable. You will either be forced to worship Jesus or the Antichrist. You'll have to choose. You know, I should add that when it comes to eternity, there are only really two things that you can take with you. You know, Jesus said, store it for yourself, treasure in heaven. What is that treasure? You know, defining that treasure, what you can actually take with you, it should influence, logically speaking, your priority, shouldn't it? You see, in heaven, you'll have your memories. So make good ones and plenty of them. And you can also take your friends with you if they know Jesus. We're told in, in our text, to those who turn many to righteousness, who get many of their friends to come with them to heaven, they shall be like the stars forever and ever. Understand your legacy for all of eternity. It won't be how much money you make or how famous you are on this earth. Your legacy will be how many of those you've influenced for the cause of Christ. Verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Now, describing that time. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. This command for Daniel to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end really presents for us two fascinating ideas. Like, not only does this indicate the prophecy is now complete, like there's nothing to add, which explains why Daniel could shut up the words and seal up the book. It seems, from the, from the text, that the closer we get to the end, the more interested people will become of the end times, and the more understandable the prophecies of Daniel's would become. Like, in fact, the second half of this verse describes for us the environment whereby the prophecies themselves would become more relevant and self-evident. Like regarding the time of the end, we're told many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. The idea here of running to and fro suggests that the closer we get to the end, a greater sense of investigation, an interest, in learning about the end times, it'll get more and more prevalent. Like the closer humanity gets to the events themselves, the more interested of these events will be. You know, it's worth noting that beginning in the 19th century, the church has been more interested in eschatology, the study of end times, than at any other point in its history. Then on account of this expanding curiosity, because we're closer to the events themselves, it's only logical that our knowledge of Daniel's prophecies, our ability to understand them, would naturally increase. Let me give you an easy example of this. Prior to May 14, 1948, much of the book of Daniel, what we've been studying for the last several months, 
was misunderstood almost universally by theologians. And there was a reason for it. The nation of Israel, kind of central to most of these prophecies, hadn't existed for 1,878 years. In fact, most scholars had kind of adopted what's known as a replacement theology as a result. The idea that the church kind of replaced Israel. And yet, following World War II and the brutalities of the Nazis towards the Jews, Israel was granted independence. And in a moment, like that, the prophecies of Daniel instantly took on an entirely new context. Verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. Now, we're getting back kind of to the original scene, established back in chapter 10, you know, the scene before we diverged into the prophecy itself. Daniel had been standing on the shore of the Tigris River. He's been listening now to a revelation, this incredible prophetic word given by this angel. Now that the prophecy itself has kind of come to an end, Daniel kind of returns to his surroundings, and he notices that there's two other angels, uh, one on each side of the river, on each bank. Verse 6, And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? (laughs) Not only do we have two angels standing on each side of the Tigris, but we also return to this person of Jesus. The certain man clothed in linen, a reference back to chapter 10, who is presently where? Hovering above the waters of the river. We already know that Jesus had the ability to walk on water, so this shouldn't be a surprise. In light of all that Daniel has seen, one of the angels asked Jesus a question. He says, how long? Like, how long will it be until the things that Daniel has been hearing about would be fulfilled. Verse 7, Then I heard, Daniel saying, the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river. When he held up his right hand, his left hand to heaven, he swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Concerning the fulfillment of these things, Jesus once again affirms The timeline of a time, one year, times plus two years, and half a time plus a half a year, totaling, again, three and a half years. In line with what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, we know from the abomination of desolation, and the Antichrist does this abominable deed, there would be 1,260 days. You could circle it on the calendar until Jesus' second coming when all of these things shall be finished. Daniel adds, verse 8, Although I heard, I did not understand. And you can sympathize with his context, writing of things so far away. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Again, he kind of repeats the question because he doesn't understand it. He doesn't get an answer. Instead, the man clothed in linen, Jesus said, Go your way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Now, now, on a side note, there's something very interesting here that we'll unpack later. These words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Like that indicates that.
that there is a time coming in the future whereby these prophecies needing to be fulfilled also need to be unsealed. We'll find in the book of Revelation sealed judgments. A scroll where Jesus loosens the seals. I think this is all in relation to the prophetic words of Daniel. Jesus adds, many shall be purified, made white, refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335th day. (laughs) There's no question this statement. Referring to 1,290 days from the abomination of desolation is fascinating. (laughs) The reason it's fascinating is that it seems to be referring or referencing some other noteworthy event that would actually take place in the chronology 30 days after the second coming of Jesus, which we know would happen 1,260 days from the abomination of desolation. (laughs) Aside from this, Daniel is also told that 75 days after the second coming, or again, 1,335 days from the abomination of desolation, a third significant event would happen on this earth as well. In fact, of this final event, Daniel is told, blessed or happy is he who waits and comes to the 1,335th day. Now, right from the jump, I I just want to say that no one's 100% sure what happens 1,290 days or 1,335 days after the abomination of desolation. But let me give you my best guess. According to Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32, Jesus tells us, He says, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All of the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. I believe that following Jesus' second coming, it will likely take 30 days to allow the smoke to settle from the Battle of Armageddon. The world was at a breaking point. And it takes Jesus about a month or so, 30 days, to restore order and clean up the mess. Naturally, this would include restoring the earth, brought to a point of total destruction, healing the seas that have all been turned to blood with all the marine life dead, all of the fresh water and salt water, as well as proceeding to round up and bring all of the survivors to Jerusalem. I believe on the 1,290th day from the abomination of desolation, the 30th day from Jesus' second coming, all of that will have been completed. Then, with everyone now gathered to Jerusalem, the earth back in good health restored, the next 45 days would see Jesus' reordering of the nations and the forming of His government on this earth. In the end, 1,335 days from the abomination and just 75 days from Jesus' second coming, His kingdom will be finally established and officially the millennial reign will begin for the next 1,000 years. You can disagree with me. That's my best theory. Now, finishing out the book of Daniel. Here we go. 
Verse 13. Again, Jesus still talking. But you, Daniel, go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Daniel was a teenager when he was taken captive from his home many years ago. He was transported some 750 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. He was forced from his family to serve in the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar. Right from the beginning, Daniel rightly understood that his plight had not been an accident. Daniel knew that he was experiencing the judgment of God on account of Israel's consistent and persistent sin, rebellion, and wickedness. For 490 years, they hadn't obeyed the Sabbath year, so they would be in exile 70 years so the land could rest. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet had been warning that this judgment was coming. And friend, there is no doubt that God has a life for all of us. A life he created us for, wired us for, that Jesus died to save us for. You might call it a land of promise that God has for us to enjoy and to thrive within. And yet, it's equally true. Our sin can rob us of this life if we allow it to foster, to fester unchecked. While God's judgment of His people, it's always slow coming. For 490 years, God had been patient. And while God's judgment of His people tends to often be a matter of of last resort, because God loves us, He will not idly sit by and allow our sin to continue unchecked for long. Like we see with Israel of old, God's word will testify. His spirit and the conviction it brings, it'll caution us. God will even go to the lengths of sending prophets into our lives to warn us what will happen if we continue down our current path, our set trajectory. Again, God's plan for you, my friend, his plan for you and I is that we might abide in a life of promise and not be a slave in Babylon. But if we refuse to listen to God's word and his spirit and friends that are warning, remaining instead to to be steadfast in our rebellion, the day will come when God's patience in his love will expire. And he'll say enough is enough. And, And it's when that happens, in a moment, the life we knew quickly ceases. Consequences get measured out. Our normal changes. God removes us, rips us from the land by sending us into a place of exile. As anyone who's experienced such a season of correction can affirm, when this happens, when God says enough's enough and drops the hammer, you know in that moment when everything falls apart that you blew it. You know that you deserve what's taking place. You had rejected the warnings. You knew what would happen. You knew you screwed up. Like being exiled, we understand it is just. You know, and it's also natural in those moments. 
to wonder, to struggle, to grapple as to whether or not you've irreparably ruined your life. That God is probably done with you. You wonder if you still have a future, if God can still use your life for any redeeming purpose. This is where the book of Daniel is so encouraging. For in response to Daniel's acceptance and repentance of his own sin and culpability, we have seen firsthand an incredible measure of God's grace being extended to Daniel in his exile. In fact, and we will close with this, we see God's grace manifest, practically speaking, in five ways. Five ways, by the way, that God's grace can manifest in your life if you allow Him to. First, while in exile, Daniel was able to influence others in exile. Back in chapter 1, in the face of unbelievable pressure, potential consequences, Daniel made the decision, didn't he, to refuse to eat the king's delicacies, This was a line that he drew in the sand. They could change his name. They could make him dress a different way, speak a different language. But what he ate, that was a line that he drew drew in the sand because it demonstrated, it represented his covenant relationship with God. You can take everything from me, but you're not taking my God. Daniel determined from day one, knowing he was in exile because of sin, choosing a different path, he would be in Babylon Daniel was determined not to be of Babylon. We're not given the particulars, but it's evidence clear that this decision that Daniel made carried with it, it it yielded, it had a tremendous impact on three other men who had also been taken into exile. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Not only do these three amigos, who are also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, rise to incredible positions of power alongside of Daniel, but chapter 3 is a great illustration of Daniel's influence. These men, if you recall, refused to worship the golden statue set up by Nebuchadnezzar, choosing instead to be thrown into the fiery furnace. You see, Daniel's stand in exile his humility, his acceptance of God's grace. It had been contagious. You see, if not for Daniel's godly influence and the lives of these three men, they would have never had a testimony. They would have never taken a stand, and their story would not have been recorded in the annals of history. It's simply a truth that those who have experienced the judgment of God do possess a unique ability to encourage others experiencing a similar judgment. Secondly, while in exile, Daniel proved to be an incredible witness to the lost. For 70 years, Daniel faithfully served the kings who had been placed over him, unless, in doing so, he was being asked to violate his conscience before God. And in those situations... Daniel refused to obey, and he accepted the consequences, even if those consequences meant being cast alive into a den of lions. Because of Daniel's godly character and deep conviction, there is no question that he came to be a shining light in a very dark world. 
Daniel was there to help Nebuchadnezzar understand the Word of God back in chapter 2 about the future. When Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind as a judgment of God, Daniel is there to be patient, to care, to love his friend through it. I believe Nebuchadnezzar is probably one of those that Daniel brought with him to heaven. Years later, Daniel would interpret God's writing on the wall, giving Belshazzar a final opportunity to repent. In fact, because of his witness, three different kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius the Mede, and Cyrus the Persian, would all issue official declarations sent out throughout their kingdom, affirming that the God of Israel was the one and only true God. Amazing. Three, while in exile, there is no doubt Daniel made a lasting impact on his world. You know, one of the more amazing aspects of Daniel's life was his quick rise to profound places of influence. By the third year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Daniel found himself placed over the entire province of Babylon. In fact, he was made chief overseer of the wise men, the Magi. Even when the Babylonians gave way to the Medes and Persians, Daniel's value was so evident, his position in this new kingdom remained. As I noted in an earlier study, I believe Daniel was able to parlay his position, his power, his influence, to save Jeremiah the prophet during the final seeds of Jerusalem. He's able to use his influence to preserve the Old Testament manuscripts from destruction. And I believe Daniel had an impact on Cyrus's decision to allow the Hebrew people to return and rebuild the temple. Daniel made a lasting impact on his world. Number four, while in exile, Daniel gained a unique understanding. I would even say a special understanding of God's word. Like, imagine for a moment what our comprehension of prophecy would be, and specifically prophecy related to the end times and Israel, apart from the book of Daniel. I'd say we wouldn't understand much. And amazingly, what motivated so much of the revelation that Daniel received that we now have stemmed from what? His own personal study of God's Word. In response to the natural uh, questions that arose as he was examining the, the book of Jeremiah. In response to that, those questions, Daniel was given the 70 weeks prophecy. In addition to the prophecy we've been looking at recorded in chapters 10, 11, and 12. You see, God's grace to Daniel in exile allowed this man to gain an insight a unique insight into the Word of God and the future. An insight, I should add, that is still impacting the people of God, you and I, some 2,600 years later. Finally, while in exile, Daniel came to see Jesus in a radical way. Practically, in chapter 10, Daniel was given an incredible vision of the glorified Jesus, similar to what John experienced in Revelation 1 that left him in awe and wonder. Prophetically, Daniel was able to see Jesus not only as a suffering servant cut off 
by those He came to save, but as the triumphal King who'd establish an everlasting kingdom. Daniel was able to see the life and ministry of Jesus with such a particular clarity that I believe the wise men who came from the east on account of a particular star that they had seen in order to bring a newborn king of the Jews gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh was on account of the specific calculations and instructions of Daniel the prophet, chief of, yes, the Magi, the wise men, some 600 years beforehand. This morning, my friend, if you find yourself in exile, take heart. God is not done with you. As we see with Daniel, the way that you handle your experience, humility, contrition, you don't blame, you accept, you repent. The way you handle exile, well, it can influence those who are experiencing a similar fate. Aside from this, your character can be a godly witness to the world around you. Your convictions can leave a lasting impact on your world. God is not through with you. Furthermore, the greater our experience of God's grace, the deeper our understanding and insight of His Word and the more radical it is that we come to see Jesus. Again, I say, if you're in exile, God is not through with you. Maybe, as we see with Daniel, he's just getting started. Soon after the close of chapter 12, the prophet Daniel would find himself finally, at long last, returning from his exile home to the land of promise. Daniel's race took him down a difficult path, but it ended in glory. Now, it's true. History tells us that Daniel would die either in Babylon or or Persia. But our final verse indicates that while he died in Babylon, he immediately woke to an inheritance in the promised land of heaven. How amazing. Father, Lord, we thank you for the book of Daniel and all that it says to us.